You have a seat. Well, howdy. Well, my name is Kevin Barra. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus, and we are going to be in the book of Esther this morning, continuing our summer series of uh, lives, legacies of, the, of faith that we see all through the Bible. And so we're going to be looking at Esther. If you're unfamiliar with where Esther is, um, pull up in your phone and download the free app. That's the easiest way to find it. But if you've got a paper Bible, it's uh, before Job, just before, after Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, kind of right there. Um, so if you look for like Psalms, Job, there you can find Esther right there. I'm going to read a little bit for us from Esther chapter 1. And as you're flipping there, a little bit about me. Once again, my name is Kevin. I've got four kids. I've got an eight-year-old daughter named Peyton. I've got a uh, six-year-old son named Micah. I've got a four-year-old son named Jesse. And I have a two-year-old daughter named Juliet. And we are living at the pool this summer. That is the, the safest, not really safest, the best place to tire out children that I've learned and the coolest place. So anyway, hope you're having a good summer as well. Esther chapter one, starting in verse one, says this. Now, in the days of Asusurus, that's the Greek word would be King Xerxes. The Asusurus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Asusurus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his servants. The army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. That is a six-month party. And when the days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and all and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of uh, porphyry, you know, just like your house, right? Marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the drinking was according to this edict. There was no compulsion, meaning... There's no rules. You don't have to drink or you can drink as much as you want. For the king had given orders to all of his staff in his palace to do as each man desired. Now Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to Asusurus. We pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I pray that as we look at this moment in the history of Israel, you would open, up to how, open our hearts up to see how you are at work in every one of the moments of our lives. And Lord, when powerful people are in power making um, decisions that are, that are not just, that are wrong, I, I pray that as we walk through our lives, we might see that you are indeed guiding all circumstances toward a great end. I lift up this morning to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, there's one big idea I want to give you this morning, and it's this. That we believe as Christians in God's providential control of history. Who's in charge in the book of Esther? God is. We believe in providence, and providence is defined as this. The protective care of God. Preparation for future eventualities. Not my words, a dictionary definition. But as Christians, we believe in God's providence. We believe that God is guiding the events of history towards a great 
purpose. We believe that God is divinely in control. But the question I would ask you this is, is how do you know God's working in your life? How do you know if God is in control of all things? How do I know that God's control of like my thing? How do I know if God is actually working in my life? Well, I hear this phrase all the time thrown out. It's a God thing. And what we mean by that phrase, it's a God thing, is, is that God seems silent all the way through my life, and then suddenly he intervened. Like, I got the job, I met the one, right? I got an A on the test. You know, like there's something that just happened, and it seemed like God was silent, and then suddenly intervened in my life. That God was silent and absent, but suddenly intervened, and it became a, a God moment. For others of us, we, we say, well, God actually isn't even in control of anything in my life. I feel like my life is, is kind of out of control. And if I was to give you an example, it would be kind of like a, there's a game that came out years ago called Pocket God, a little app. And you had little people that were on a little island that you could control. Like, so you could just strike them with lightning, burn their village down. Like, there's nothing really nice you could do. Every now and then you could drop bananas, but, but you could just pick the little guys up and drop them and feed them to sharks. I mean, just... You could literally just jack with their lives. And for some of you, you feel like God is like that. I remember many, several years ago, I went on a, uh, a trip on a boat out to Lake Bryan with a friend of mine, and uh, I trusted him, which was mistake number one, right? And we, there's a group of us. We all went out there, we're getting on the boat, and we're going to go tubing out on this boat. And, and he looks at me, and he goes, he goes, Kevin, how hard do you want to go? And I'm like, I don't know. Let's just have a good time out there. And he goes, I'm going to do what I call the egg beater. And I'm like, oh. The what? What are, you, what are you saying? And he, there's two of us out on, on uh, tubes, and he starts doing figure eights in the water. And so it's getting choppier and more violent and more crazy. And at first it's like, oh, this is kind of fun, cute. And then we're like, okay, I'm going to puke. And then the two of us suddenly hit this wake together and then slam together. We both go flying into the air. I fall into the water first. I move to the fetal position to protect myself, right? The most dangerous position, right? So I'm in the fetal position, and he, this 15-year-old boy lands on my hip, cracks a rip. Or at least really bruised it. It made it my crap, but it was like... He, <laughs> but it's better for the story. Anyway, he, he hurt his rip. And he gets out of the water, and, and I look up at this guy driving the boat, and I'm like, what are you thinking? Like... What are you doing? Like, you had this power, and you just destroyed our lot. Like, what are you doing with this thing that you have? And for some of us, we like, feel like either God is absent, or, or he's just allowing circumstances, people in power, to do weird, dumb things on boats. You know, we just don't know if God is really in charge of our lives. And I'll tell you what, in the book of Esther, it's so interesting, is that the, the name of God is literally, literally not mentioned one time in the entire book. No one prays to him. No one calls out to him. The name of Yahweh, the name of God is not mentioned at one point in the entire book. But here's what you see. God's fingerprints are over the entire story. Chuck Swindoll, in his commentary, his book on Esther, writes this. Who has not longed for a word from God, searched for a glimpse of his power, or yearned for the assurance of his providence, only to feel that he seems absent from the moment, distant, preoccupied, maybe even unconcerned, yet later we realize how very present he was all along. You see, even if we don't see God moving the way that we want, we can have confidence in this, that God is in control of the events of history. 
He is in control of the events of your life. Psalm 37, 23 says it this way. The steps of man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. God establishes your steps, your future, your path. He does. Romans 8, 28 says it this way. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, the, the truth is this. Even though we may not understand the how or the why God is moving events the way that he is, we can have confidence that, that there is a grand purpose. There is something that God is doing in the midst of your life and my life as he's moving through history, and you can have confidence in that, and that is a confidence we can gain from the book of Esther. Let me give you a little spoiler alert. It doesn't look positive. The first two chapters of the book of Esther aren't aren't clearly guided by God. In fact, if you as we're going to look through it, it seems like God's hand is off the wheel. But you can rest assured God is present through history. The story opens up with King Assyrus. And he talks about a royal party that he is throwing. And what's so interesting about this king who's currently in power is that he is a dark king. He's a king who's using power and authority however he wills in the world. King Xerxes came to power about 486 um, BC. He was 32 years old when he came into power during his reign. His father Darius had started a war with the Greeks and came back and had died and, and Xerxes came to power. And he is reigning over the nation of Persia at this point in time. And what we see at this point in history is that he is the most powerful man who had ever lived in their day and age. It says that he ruled a region um, of 120 provinces, 127 provinces. He is powerful. This is a map of the region of, of ancient Persia. It went extended all the way from India to Ethiopia, north even into, into Greece. It was a vast region. There was thought at this point in history to be about 100 million people alive on the earth. 50 million of them lived here. When the ancients talked about uh, the Persian Empire or the war, ancient world, this is what was in their mind. It was the most populated, the most vast, and in this populated, dense area, they had solidified power under one man, Xerxes. And he literally did what he wanted. At this point in history, he's actually preparing for a war against the Greeks. And so if you ruled a region this vast, and you wanted to get um, allegiance from the, from the people that you're leading, how do you guarantee allegiance from all of those men that are leading or different provinces in this region? You throw a party. Not just any party. You throw the best party. You throw a party for, I don't know, six months. And you bring out the best wine. You bring out the best entertainment. You throw a ridiculous party and you show everyone how powerful and wealthy you are. And that's what he did for six months. And not only did he throw a party for all of the the men that came to this um, event, there was probably about 15,000, the story tells about 15,000 people that attended this party for these six months. But then he opened up the the gates of his house so that all the people that lived in the community could come and and see the wealth and and the, the splendor of his ridiculous palace. And as he's showing off his palace and, and, and getting these people together, they were actually making plans for war. 
In ancient culture, the way that they prepared for war uh, in this Persian empire is that they would all come together. They would, they would get drunk at night. They would come up with a plan that they wanted to do the next day to fight the Greeks. Then they would go to sleep. And one scribe would write down the plan that they woke up in the morning and they still liked the plan. They would go with that plan. So over six months, that's what's going on. They're laying out the groundwork for this invasion against the Greeks. They're planning this thing out in this crazy drunkenness. This, there's a D word for you, debauchery that's happening over this time. And as they're going through this over and over and over again, there comes a moment when this powerful king says, you know what, this party could get a little bit better. Not only am I powerful, secondly, I'm, I'm merciless. This party could get a little bit better. I'm going to... I'm going to get my wife in here. Now in verse 10 of chapter 1, it says this. Now on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, so he's happy, he commanded uh, Melahem, Bizla, Harbat, other people, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. So Xerxes is married with wine. He's having this moment. He says, what can make this party a little bit better? I'm going to bring my wife in. And my wife is beautiful, great to look at. She's throwing her own party for women. We've got this party for men. I'm going to bring my wife over. And it says, wearing her crown. Some commentators believe he asked that she be wearing only her crown. A man with all this power, all this wealth, says, I'm going to parade all the wealth of my my gold and and tapestries and everything. And not only that, I'm going to parade my wife. And Vashti at this moment says, no, I'm not going to do that. And I commend her for that. She said, I'm not going to be like one of your little toys that you parade around. No. And so immediately she denies the king's command and he banishes her. No longer will she ever come into his presence again. But, but that's not really enough. The men around him say, okay, this is bad. Like, your wife denied, what, denied an order from you. Okay, none of us do that. Your wife certainly can't do that. Here what you, here's what you need to do. You need to make an edict and send it all over our territory to say, women, obey your husband no matter what he says to do, even if he asks you to wear a crown. So just obey him. And that's what he does. He sends out an edict demanding that all women obey their husbands and do whatever they ask you to do. This is a dark time. This is a dark king that uses his power and mercilessly enforces his will. And you look at this moment, you go, God, do you even know what's happening? Like, why would you let this guy be in power? Why would you let this guy do these dark, twisted things? but there's something you've got to see beneath the surface. Although bad people do bad things, God is not absent and he is not silent. See, God's positioning some people for a great purpose. And he's going to use this king to accomplish his purposes. Proverbs 21.1 says it this way. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You see, although this person thinks he has all the power and he can do whatever he wants, what God's going to do later on is direct his heart to save his people. 
He's going to change the course of this man's life in a way that we bring Esther to save the people of Israel. Little spoiler alert, we'll get there in a couple weeks. But he's actually going to use this man to protect his people. See, God is present through all of history. But not just in history, God's present in your story. God knows the events of your life. Chapter 2 opens up, verse 1 saying it this way. Now, after these things, when the anger of the king Asusris was abated, he remembered Vashti and what had been done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought to the king, be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem of Susa to the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let their, their cosmetics be given to them and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. What's interesting is that after this preparation for war, he goes off to war. Most commentators believe that, that, that he went off to war against the Greeks and in the movie 300, I'm not recommending the movie, but they portray like this event where King Xerxes goes and fights Greece. And that first moment was uh, the the battle of Thermopylae, when he faced the 300. He defeated them and continued on to fight a next group at the battle of Marathon, but he lost there. All the Greeks rallied, defeated him, and he went home alone, sad, because he lost the war. One Greek historian named um, Herodotus says it this way. Says Xerxes' disastrous defeat in Greece, he returned to Persia to console himself with his harem. Greek historians say this, this is what Xerxes does. He lost the battle and he goes back and he just wants the comfort of some woman that he can console himself by the harem. And so he comes back home and and he's sad. And his officials see that he's sad. He says, here's what we're going to do, buddy. Beauty contest. We're going to get all the beautiful women from all over your vast land and we're going to put them through a year of cosmetic treatments. We're going to make them beautiful. We're going to give them lipo and like, I don't know hot yoga and get them all beautiful and then you will have your pick of whatever woman that you want. Like this is what we'll do when you're all powerful. You can do what you want. You got no rules. Sure. Run this play and you're going to pick whatever woman you want. There's going to be a, a line of women paraded in front of you. Let's do this. That's the history, but not just the history. We see interjected into history, the story of a young family. We meet Mordecai. In verse 5, it says this, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jahir, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away by Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, um, had carried away. And so it gives you a little bit of history of this family. See, this family was, was part of the nation of Israel. This is happening in modern-day Iran. This was, their family was from Israel, and they were taken to Iran several generations beforehand. It was probably uh, Mordecai's grandfather that was taken there. And what happened is the nation of Israel had their own land. It was a, it was a beautiful place. In the, in the book of Judges, you see this dark time, but eventually they solidified their kingdom under um, only really two good kings. That was King David and, and Solomon right after David. But right after Solomon's reign, he didn't lead well, and his son split the kingdom, and the kingdom became divided. He had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom of Israel. 
the people continued to refuse to obey God. And so God said, look, if, if you want to worship false gods and false idols, you're going to be taken away into the kingdom of false idols, Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, takes the people away, and they're living in this region that was then attacked by the Persian Empire. Babylon was taken over by the Persian Empire. And now they're under the Persian Empire. But here's what's really interesting. King Cyrus, which is the granddaddy of Xerxes, issued a decree saying that Jews could all go home. They could literally go home and, and, and start worshiping God again, start performing sacrifices. That's where you get the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, where they return from Persia and start rebuilding their, their kingdom, their, their homeland. And people could have gone home. But for whatever reason, Mordecai didn't. And then you meet Esther. Esther, her name means star. Hadassah, she has two names. Hadassah her, kind of means myrtle. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. What we see in this group of people is that they first have a tragic past. They have a tragic past. And not only do they have a tragic past, they were taken from their homeland. Esther's family died. They have an uncertain present. In verse 5, the edict, or verse 8 of chapter 2, the edict comes to, to Esther. It says, verse 8, So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa to the citadel, to the custody of Haggai, Esther was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of women. So tragic is that you see this woman who, who wasn't in her homeland. She was born in a foreign nation. And now she is taken to be captive for the pleasure of a, of a harsh king. And for some of you, you may go, wait a minute, she's going to be a princess, right? Maybe even a queen. And in our mind, we picture something like this, right? It's Meghan Markle marrying Prince Henry. Like, it's just, this is a moment where she gets to become queen of the land. She could be a, a princess, and, and, and it can all be good, right? Like, isn't that where this is headed? Isn't she like this divine hope? You know, it's funny to me that we, we love princesses, even in America. Like, we were infatuated with this love story. I just throw the picture and you all laugh because you all know who these people are, which is funny to me. Several years ago when I was in college, um, I went uh, to Boston to visit um, with a friend of mine and his parents. Now, his parents were from England, and his mom loved to give tours of Boston. And so I land there, and immediately she gives me the tour of Boston with that British slant. So she goes... There's our tea, or there's our, our harbor where you dumped our tea into the harbor, right? It's a Boston Harbor, right? We go over to Paul Revere's house. She's like, there's, there's his, you know, the steeple where the, he warned you we were coming. You know, like, so she's giving me the tour of Boston with this British accent. And I'm like, didn't we abandon the monarchy? Like, didn't we want something different? But, but we love this love story because we're like, oh, it's love. It's the bachelorette, right? Like, she's got a shot of getting with that man, you know, and... But in reality, it's probably like she's marrying a guy like this, you know? <laughs> Kim Jong-un, if you don't, leader of North Korea. <laughs> See, it, it's not the love story of, of, of a happily ever after. It's a woman in a dark time marrying a despot, 
dictator king. And in this moment, we don't even know what her future is going to look like. We don't know what's going to happen. But he's, she's brought into this place, and it just feels like powerful people are making domineering decisions. That's what it feels like. God, are you even here? Well, we get a hint that he is in verse 9 of chapter 2. It says, And the young woman pleased him, that's Haggai, and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portions of food and with seven chosen women for the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Something happens to Esther in this moment. She finds favor. That's the Hebrew word, hesed. It's used all through the Old Testament to describe God's loyal love to his people. You see, in the midst of this moment where this woman feels like she's drawn at the whims of powerful men, you see the loving kindness of God sprinkled into the mix. See, even though we don't know what is finally going to happen with Esther, we do see that God God is providing for her. His love is still present, even though it feels very, very absent. And the same is true in your life. God loves you. In Acts chapter 17, Paul says it this way, one of my favorite passages. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind, brought le- uh, all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? Why did he put these people all over the earth? What is he doing? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. What is God doing with the life of Esther? He is putting her in a place that she might reach out and grab him. What is God doing in your story with the things that you're walking through? He is leading your life so that you might reach out and grab him. He's in charge of all of history. He's in charge of your story. And what that means for us is that we need to follow his invisible guiding hand. Which sounds challenging. See, we don't believe in chance, happenstance, or circumstance. We believe in God's providence. That's my best rhyme that I got, right? See, we don't believe in chance, happenstance, circumstance. We believe that God is providentially guiding all of the events of history. He's guiding your life, and he's guiding it through his invisible hand. Sometimes God saves through his visible hand of miracles. And sometimes God leads your life through his invisible hand of providence. And that's what we see in this story. And so there's so much we can gain from how Esther responds in this moment. There are three things I want to give you for how to follow God's invisible hand of providence. The first thing we see that Esther does is this. She listens to the wisdom of the people God places right around her. She listens to the counsel that God puts right around her. So the first person she listens to is is Haggai. He's in charge of the women and, and he says, look, here's how you need to navigate this world. It says Haggai was a eunuch. So he had a rough go too, right? And he says, if you want to navigate this world, it's dark, but I will protect you and I will show you how to make some good decisions in a very dark place. 
she, secondly, she listens to Mordecai. Mordecai tells her, hey, don't reveal your identity. Don't tell them you're Jewish. Don't tell them about your family. Just walk this line. Was that bad advice? Commentators divide on this. But this is a very dark point in history. This is a very tragic point in history. And when times are very dark, sometimes wisdom says, I'm going to listen to the people right around me that God has put there to navigate this complex situation. For me, growing up, the people that have been most influential to me are coaches, teachers, bosses, bosses, parents, and a spouse, my wife. Those are the people that God puts right around you to help guide you to make wise decisions in your life. They're gifts from God. I've got four kids, as I said. The other day, um, my two boys decided they wanted to have a bare-knuckle boxing match in my living room. They're six and four, and so it's not going to go really wrong. But in that moment, I'm like, okay, I'm the dad. I need to give some good advice. I'm not going to tie them down to bird them from boxing. I'm just going to give them good advice. Boys, you're going to hurt yourselves. This is stupid. Don't do this. And they look at me like I'm, like I'm the idiot. I'm like, what? And then they just, they go, ha <laughs> And then they start fighting each other again. And I'm like, this is not going to go well. And then I said, so I'm going to go back to reading my book. I did my part. And, <laughs> and then suddenly I hear one screaming on the ground. He's like, you punched me. And I look over. I'm like, what did you expect? <laughs> right? And I realized it was the younger one that got an uppercut to the gut, you know? It was like a, and I was like, that's, that's um, awesome, but bad. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, so often in life, it is difficult to listen to the wisdom of those people right around you because sometimes the people closest to you are the ones you want to hear from the least. But those are God's gifts to you, that you would listen to that wise counsel. Proverbs twelve fifteen says it this way. The way of the fool, you want to make foolish decisions, is right in his own eyes. If you want to make foolish decisions in life, only do what you think. Only do what you see. Only say, this is the way I see it, this is the way I think it. That Only live upon your vision of your life, and that is a foolish decision according to Scripture. But a wise man listens to advice. You receive the counsel that that God has put right around you. But secondly, not only do you receive the counsel, you learn from the counsel. Proverbs 19.20 says this way, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Not only do you listen to the advice, you accept the advice and you apply it to your life. For me, when I was in college, I had to learn this um, Lesson, kind of a hard way. I, I, uh, I ran track in college, and um, there's an event that I ran called the steeplechase, which is a long-distance race over hurdles in a water pit, which is as fun as it sounds, right? It's a two-mile race, hurdles, water pits. Um, uh, the NCAA championships was going on this weekend, and uh, it was fun to see some highlight videos of people hitting barriers and falling face first. In fact, there was one guy from the University of Houston um, who ran this past weekend, who hit a barrier. He was in the lead. I thought he was going to win, hit a barrier, and then just he came up like with just blood and stuff like that. So didn't quite make it. That was my race. Love my race. Okay. So I'm running one race uh, at Penn Relays, my freshman year of college. 
and we, we get to pin relays and pin relays in track world is like the epitome. Like you want to run a pin relays. It's a huge deal. And we're there. There's thousands of people in the audience. It's a huge deal. And, and I'm there on the line. And my coach looks at me and says, go out in last place. Now you may not be a runner, but you can figure out lose the game doesn't sound like a winning strategy. Last place isn't the first winner. It is last place. And you go, I don't know if that's last place. I'm like, all right. So the gun blows and most people take off sprinting and I took off trotting, right? (laughs) Moving to last place. And I remember that was my, the assistant coach and the head coach is sitting on one side of the track and he sees me in last place for the first two laps and he won't even look at me. Like he just, Race is going on here. He's just like, I don't know who that punk is. And, and I'm running through like, okay, okay. And, and then about three laps into the race, he goes, go pick him off. And I start running. I pass a guy, pass a guy, pass a guy, pass a guy. And I start moving my way up. Towards the end of the race, my coach who was standing there like this goes, all right, Kevin, you're doing all right. You know, like, but it was so hard to listen to that advice. It seems so counterintuitive. It seems so weird. But God put that man in my life to help me make better decisions. I'll tell you what, God does the same thing all through your life. He puts teachers, he coaches, pastors, Bible study leaders, parents, mom and dad, even mom and mom and dad, grandparents, to help you to help you make wise decisions in your life. And that, when you apply their wisdom, that's when she finds favor. Verse 15 says, Now when Esther, the daughter of Abimahel, the uncle of Mordecai, who was, in, was taken away to the king, she asked for nothing except what, the, what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. See, she took the wisdom, applied it to her life, and as people saw her applying the wisdom of these people around her, they went, that is someone worth considering. That is someone worth listening to. She is finding favor around, with everyone around her. The word has said again. And then she goes into the king's presence. And he brings her in. He falls in love with her. Takes her into his presence. You see, to follow God's invisible hand means this. We, we listen, we learn, and lastly, we trust in God's guiding hand. We trust in God's providence. Why is she in this place? What is she going to do here? I don't know yet. I've read the story, I know, but I don't know yet. She doesn't know yet. I don't know why you're here. I don't know why God brought you to College Station, Texas. I don't know why he brought you to the Aggieland world. I don't know why he's put you with the roommates that you have. I don't know why he gave you the parents he did. I don't know what path he has for your future. But here's what I do know. He's in control of that. And in this scenario in life, what we do is we trust in his guiding hand, knowing that he has put us here for a reason. He has put us here for a purpose. He is positioning us for his great purpose. And Esther can trust. I may not know why suddenly the king wants me as part, one of his wives, but I can trust that God is guiding the story. F.B. Meyer writes this, writes this of our lives. He says, fit yourself for God's service. Be faithful. 
He will presently appoint thee in some unlikely quarter, in a shepherd's hut, in an artesian's cottage. He has prepared his appointed instrument. As of yet, that shaft is hidden in the quiver, in the shadow of his hand. But at the precise moment, it will tell with the greatest effect, it will be produced and launched into the air. You see what he's saying? He's saying your life is like a quiver hidden in God's hand. And I don't know what God is going to do with your life, but it's, it's like the right moment he's going to take you out and he's going to shoot you forth to be effective for him. All Esther can hold on to in this moment is, I'm going to listen, I'm going to learn, and I'm going to trust that God is guiding my story. And if I put my weight behind him, he will not let me down. I don't know why God has you here. I don't know what struggle you're facing. But for many of us, is God working in your life? You bet he is. And he may just be preparing you for what he is going to launch you to do. But you can trust in his hand. Over the next two weeks, we're going to continue looking at Esther. We're going to see how she is prepared and how she has the opportunity to step out in faith. It's going to be huge. It's going to be amazing. And we'll get there part of next week. I hope you continue and join us on this journey and pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you for the life of Esther, a woman in a tragic time who you used in an amazing way. And Lord, I know for so many of us, we wonder, God, are you really in control of our destiny? Are you really in control of the trajectory of our life? And that we can look at the life of Esther and say, Lord, If you can move things for the good of her life in that dark place, you can certainly move things for my good in this place. And I pray, Lord, that you give us confidence and comfort in your guiding hand of providence. So now we pray. Amen. You guys have a great morning.